y'all. Welcome to Marty Smith's America, the podcast. We've had some tremendous guests so far, and today we have one of the funniest ones yet. This quite probably is the funniest edition of the Marty Smith's America podcast to date. We have Uncle Rico, John Grise, the the actor, excuse me, who played Uncle Rico, was kind enough to join us. Producer Travis ran him down, and the interview is funny. Uh, we learn about what it was like to become Uncle Rico, how the character was born, how well it was written, how unique it was to play such an iconic character. And not only that, we get into the movie Napoleon Dynamite itself, a cult classic if there ever was one. And the, there's so many amazing moments and lines in that movie and so many resonant characters, whether it be Napoleon himself, Kip, La Fonda, uh, Rex Quando, Starla, Grandma, on and on and on. Pedro. There are these hilarious, memorable characters throughout that movie. And probably the most famous and most memorable is Uncle Rico. And we'll get into that uh, in depth with John. And not just the character, but also the man. We learn about the man who played Uncle Rico but who he is personally. And it, I'm going to tell you, it's going to surprise you guys what John says and the depth and vulnerability he shows in the interview about himself as a person. Uh, so that's wonderful. And we also get into the Marty Party. My boy Ryan McGee, ESPN senior writer, anybody who knows about uh, what we're doing in our body of work, the Marty and McGee program every Saturday morning, 7 to 9. McGee's my co-host, and he's a complete idiot just like I am. And nobody has more fun in their job than we do. And then there is the hotline. And all I really have to say about the hotline coming up after a while is baking soda, guitars, and Bristol Motor Speedway. Before we get to Uncle Rico, quite probably the best dressed man I've ever seen, at least among those still stuck in the 80s, I want to tell you about a partner of mine, Indochino the world's largest made-to-measure menswear company. Every man looks better in a suit, y'all. You know it, I know it, the ladies certainly know it. And the better the suit fits, the better the man looks, and the better he feels. I live on the run. One day I'm in Paris, France. The next day I'm in Louisville chasing horses at the Kentucky Derby. The Marty Party never stops. So I need suits and shirts to get up and go with me. Indochino gets up and goes with you. The folks have noticed... Indochino has been featured in GQ, Forbes, and Fast Company. Their suits and shirts are tailored to your exact specifications to fit you perfectly. They have a wide selection of high-quality fabrics and the option to personalize your lapel or your jacket lining. That's important to me. One thing I have in common with Uncle Rico is I still miss high school football. And on my shirt cuffs and inside every single jacket, I still get my high school number, nine, embroidered within and on my shirts. Here's how it works. Visit a showroom or shop online at Indochino.com. Pick your fabric, choose your customizations, submit your measurements, and wait for your custom suit to arrive in just a few weeks. This week, my listeners can get any premium Indochino suit for just $379 at Indochino.com when entering Marty at the checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit, which you can embroider and fit you perfectly. 
Plus, shipping is free. So go to Indochino.com, enter promo code MARTY for any premium suit for just $379 and free shipping. This is an incredible deal for a suit that will fit you better than anything off the rack ever could. Indochino.com, promo code MARTY right now. And right now, it's time to hang with Uncle Rico. John, man, I appreciate your time so much. I noticed uh, on your Twitter bio that you're on time for things that matter. Yeah, well, I guess I, I hope I'm on time right now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go ahead and assume that the Marty Smith America podcast matters. We'll take it, brother. It uh, does. It matters, man. It really matters. You've had one hell of a great career, and it's been really diverse, and a lot of people may not know that, and we'll get into all that later. But I have to start. I have to preface our entire time together by admitting that I'm one of these Napoleon Dynamite cult weirdos. That's okay. I am too. So oh, just... and I, I when I watch it, I forget that I'm on that movie. I'm in that movie. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of the film, and uh, and uh, it, it's. I don't usually have an easy time watching myself in anything, but that that is uh, is one of the easier times I have. It's funny you say that because I don't like watching myself on television when I'm interviewing someone or reporting on something either. I'm just uncomfortable doing it. Uh, yeah. Why, but but what is it about that character that makes it okay for you to watch it? You know, that's I, I don't know. I, you know, I think it's because things unfolded as well as I was prepared. I, I didn't. I didn't come to the what what can I say the epiphany of the character didn't hit me until I was on set in the scene playing the guy uh and any preparation that I might have done was right out the window so it was so um it just felt so unprepared in a way that it was so prepared I I don't know how to explain it but that that it was a a revelation everything that was happening as I was doing it was a surprise to me you know, but the beauty of Uncle Rico is that the randomness is the beauty. So I think, yeah, I guess, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> take that compliment, brother. Just take the compliment. <laughs> what was the epiphany? You. you were talking about the epiphany was not knowing what. What was that moment? I think that you know. I mean, to be very specific, I would say that um, you know the first scene that I shot was the scene with Kip in the diner. And, it just uh, makes me laugh, dude. I can't help it. So we shot all those diner scenes in one day. Like, I think there was like two or three of them. Uh, two of them, maybe. Two long ones. And, uh, you know, I think that the epiphany was, I don't know, I think the preparation was more like, you know, being avuncular. You know, being like, kind of, you know, keeping him down and, and staying above him. But it, it, it became something completely different. I think it became... Uh, Totally self-aware and uh, in a a true character choice, not as an actor like, oh, my God, what am I doing? Self-aware is is obviously a huge pitfall and a danger for an actor. But but as as the character, self-aware in that, are they checking my out? You know what I mean? Do they see me? Because if they don't see me. They're missing something, you know. That kind of totally. that sense of, you know. I mean, the the, the whole um, flexing my arms in that scene happened in the moment. I didn't pr- prepare that. That happened truly because I took a bite of an onion ring and a glob of that stuff, whatever I dipped it in, <laughs> dropped on my arm, 
And I looked around the room like, did anybody see that? And in that moment that I said that to myself in the character was the moment that I realized, okay, well, they, they got to check this out. If they haven't seen that, they got, you know, and then it's just like, so that I'm not even listening to Kip anymore. I'm not even, I'm not even taking the time to, to focus on what he's doing. Everything he tells me is, is way more of a surprise. And I have to kind of do a speed check to catch up. Like, what, wait, what? You know, there, so that was not how I prepared to do the scene whatsoever. But, you know, it was, so I think watching it, I, you know, it's, it's, it's joyful in the sense that I, I did nothing that I prepared to do. Comprehensively, how much of the Uncle Rico mastery was ad-libbed versus scripted? Oh, I would say 99% of it was scripted. That's a, it's a, that's a beautiful script. Jared and Jerusha Hess wrote a lovely script, and it was, it was uh, oddly poetic. The only part that I would say was improvised was when Kip and I are talking about where we're going to go sell uh, Tupperware. There was nothing really scripted there, so we just started talking, and I started asking him questions about, wait, you, you mean you pay for being on the Internet? You know, like, and then he was like, yeah, well, Grandma doesn't, you know. And I, like, and I was like, that all happened in the moment. It's funny you talking about the Tupperware. I reference all the time, and you can my, my producer Travis is on. We have a, a show on Saturday mornings on ESPN Radio, national ESPN Radio called Marty and McGee that I do with my buddy Ryan McGee, who's sure. a writer for ESPN Magazine. And we're the biggest dumb <laughs> you've ever heard in your life. We don't, we're a sports network, John. We mm-hmm. don't talk about sports yeah. ever. We talk about uh, being so rednecks funny. from the country. But one right. thing that I always mention is when there's something that I really want, like I'm a big, I love Air Jordans. And like if there's something that, that I, I really want, want that. I want that. Exactly. That, that scene <laughs> is so classic when the clipper ship comes out and old girl goes, oh, yeah. I want that. <laughs> and it's completely, you know, it's such a surprise. I mean, you know, all of a sudden there's this big ship that in and of, of itself is so funny, but that, that girl that, and I don't even remember her name and she, she was just there for an hour or so, and she was funny, local girl, and she just threw that out there. And and the guy who played her husband, Brian, was our second assistant director. He just played the really. Play. I mean, oh yeah, it was so low budget that we were, you know, they were. It was just kind of pulling itself together as we were going along, you know. I saw where uh, Header got paid like a grand to be Napoleon Dynamite, like some yes. nominal <laughs> tiny fee, like what? Yeah, and the in the movie grossed fifty million bucks. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think he got a back end deal. I know I, I hope so. That. <laughs> yeah. Well, because I got seventy five bucks a day, man. You know, that's what I got. <laughs> You're getting paper, baby. I like it. <laughs> yeah, truly. I mean, you know, and the funny thing was when I got the offer, because they had seen uh, uh, it was in a film called The Big Empty. And, and the casting director showed them my scene from The Big Empty because they had put out a couple of offers to bigger names, you know, who had just turned it down and. They saw the scene and they said, yeah, let's make an offer. And then they contacted my manager and my manager was like, you don't want to do this. This is 75 bucks a day. I don't know who these kids are. I don't know. You know, like kind of just, and this is not my present manager, my old manager. And uh, of course, so uh, I said, just send me the script. Let me read it. And I'm telling you by page 15, I was laughing out loud. And I said, yeah, you tell them I'll do it. I'll show up. I'll drive there. It's all good. You know, Uh, who were the bigger names? Uh, I know one of them was Jason Lee. Jason Lee. I don't okay. know. Who. I just can't imagine anybody else being Rico. Like, I mean, yeah, you know, I now that I, now that it's you, it's just impossible to imagine somebody else trying to do it. Yeah, it was it was one of those things. It was it was really 
it was a, a blessing. It was a blessing to have have that lion in my lap. It was a blessing to be in a great mood the day, it, you know, who knows? You know, so many things can happen in a person's life. You could be having an argument with your girlfriend or your wife or whatever, and something comes and you're like, nah, I don't want to, you know what I mean? Like, yep, it just, absolutely. you never, you know, I didn't stub my toe that morning. Who knows? I just, it was like everything was going beautifully. It was, it was a smooth, beautiful, clear, sunny day. And there it came. And I just, I just was roaring. I was laughing so hard. How did you develop this character? Because, dude, every small town has that guy. And yeah. Not only, not only, like, do you own that guy? I mean, it's, it's the clothes. It's the van. I mean, the van? The van is classic. The camcorder, the whole thing the is just perfect. How did you develop this? Okay, well, now, here, here's where a lot of credit has to go. Because we shot this movie in Preston, Idaho, mostly uh, in Preston, Idaho, which is where Jared Hess grew up. And apparently there was a guy that he would see on the way to school in the morning in the bus <laughs> on his front lawn videotaping himself throwing a football. So, You're lying. So, so perfect. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. So that the rest of the blanks just got filled. You know, like he, his imagination was like, man, I wonder what this dude's life is. You know, why, why is he out there throwing a the football? I mean, you know, for all we know, the guy was playing in some rec league and he was just trying to just, you know, hone his skills. But, but you know, all of a sudden, Jared Hess just, you know, uh, soaking it up in a hot tub with my soulmate. I mean, you know, like it became something completely different, which was so beautiful. And yet, you know, look, anybody can relate to that. Any, any, I think women are men, you know, everybody has their moment, you know, like that Bruce Springsteen song, Glory Days. Yeah, man. It's so, so apropos. It's, it's almost, it is cliche, you know, and yet, uh, but the way this was handled was not cliche at all, of course, but, but it's cliche in the sense that we all, or I should say not cliche, it's universal. It's something that I think everybody relates to. It's like, damn, if I'd only turn left instead of turning right. I mean, it just was one of those things, you know, uh, it, you know, that they walk in, you know, walk into the wrong to the wrong room at the wrong time or the right room at the right time. It's just one of those things, you know, and um, particularly when it comes to sports, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I think back on when I was trying out for junior college to play baseball and, you know, I, some of the things that I, the choices that I made that I could have done better, you know, I, so immediately it was, there was a direct correlation. It was relatable. And, and then of course I was able to take it further, you know, to, to make it, you know, the guy's really trying to grasp the past. And one of the things I did right after I got the job was I went to a wig store, like one of those cheap Korean wig stores here in L.A., and I bought the wig because I thought, this looks really 80s. You know, this is kind of like an 80s haircut. And I thought, he, if he's trying to go back in time and he's trying to look like he did back then, well, of course he wears a wig and wouldn't let anybody know. He would never, you'd never play it as a wig because there's a whole wig through line in the, in the movie with Pedro, you know, when he shaves his head and they give him a wig, you know. So I never wanted to play the cheap joke of getting the wig knocked off my head or, you know, if people bought it as hair, then let him buy it as hair. But it wasn't even real. It was, it was nylon. It's <laughs> <laughs> just so funny. You know, all right, so John, my wife will tell you, my wife will tell you I'm that guy because okay. I, so I grew up in a tiny <laughs> little, I grew hold on now. I grew up in a tiny little town in Virginia called Parisburg. It's not big as a uh -huh. minute. We got one stoplight. We got a Hardee's and a Dairy Queen and a Walmart. We just got a Walmart after I left. Anyway, right. we won state in 93 in Virginia. Wow. We won a state championship. 
And all of my buddies still have their rings. Like we all still have the ring 25 years later. And so I, like my wife kills me for this. She's like, oh, do you are, did, did you ever watch Friday Night Lights, that Peter Berg show with Buddy Garrity? Oh, sure, yeah. So Buddy was like the sponsor guy who won state in like 78, and he's still flashing right. the ring. Yeah. It's, it's hilarious. Why were you, now, okay, so why was Uncle Rico so confident he'd have won state in 82? I think that he just, you know, I think a lot of it is, <laughs> is uh, you know, that, that's part of like, the, the, it, that's why I, I think that for me going back to the diner scene, p- pushing his muscles out, is is kind of indicative of why he thinks he would win state because the guy has just this incredible inflated sense of himself, you know, yes. and yes. and uh, and and of course now knowing now what he wishes he knew then, you know, it's one of those things. Gosh, if I only knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have done it th- that way. I would have I would have really made a, a point, you know. That it's just one of those things that he just he he wasn't aware enough, you know, at that time to to take the bull by the horns and. And have that same behavior because who knows, you know, sometimes that confidence will get people to, to kind of prick up their ears and listen to you and say, all right, let's see what this guy can do, you know. And he'll but, never get the opportunity for closure because it passed never. him by. No, and that's 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 the um, that's kind of the horribleness of it. You know, that's why I was saying you're that guy. I was saying, oh, I hope you don't cry. I'm glad you're laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a very you blessed know. life, man. I've, I get to oh, yeah. I get to do things. Speaking. Of, OK, so here's an Uncle Rico moment. Here's here's that guy moment. So last year before the opening game of the college football season last August, I went down. Uh-huh. I had the Alabama versus Florida State season opener in Atlanta. And I spent the entire week with the Crimson Tide. And one thing that I did, I'm really close with a lot of equipment managers across college football. And so I coaxed my boys at Bama into letting me dress out in full pads and do drills. And so I put on full pads and I ran the 50-yard dash and I was terrified that I was going to blow a hammy out. Yeah, of course. course. I'm a 40-year-old man, John. We, I yeah. mean, look, we're not well, quite so, asleep. Hey, listen, foot. that's not too bad. That, listen, there, Ichiro Suzuki is 44. Come on now. Yeah, you know, a, I mean, there are guys who are still playing sports, you know. <laughs> you're 40. That's good. I got to get her tuned tune back up then. You, you're putting the pressure on me, John. I'm telling you. Tell I me, didn't what, know. Wait, what, were you a wide receiver, a deep back, or a quarterback? I, what were you? I was a defensive back and a kicker. You mean my high school glory days? Or yeah, sure, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was a defensive back, a kick and punt returner. Um, I got my ass ran over a lot, but that happens. You got when wheels, you're 135 though. pounds at six feet tall. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, how often did you guys just bust out laughing uncontrollably before you were able well, to finish was, scenes? You know what, what's really amazing is I, I I've had that question before, and 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 it is kind of a phenomenon to me that during a lot of the scenes. Uh, people didn't, I don't know, the characters, we were all taking ourselves so seriously that we, we never, I feel like we all kind of uh, in agreement, like tacitly agreed that we weren't playing a comedy, we were playing a serious film. So I think that's part of the reason the film is so good is that the charm is that the, everybody is so committed to what they're saying and what they're doing that there's no sense of, and I think that's really the lesson for anybody who ever wants to play comedy. Well, you never play comedy, you play it for truth, you know. And and it just so happened that as we were doing it, we 
there was never a moment like except maybe at lunch where John Heater and I would look at each other and then we'd bite, you know, we'd laugh because, you know, like when I when we had the little fight, you know, he threw the grapefruit the, at the at the uh, at the van, you know, and and then we had the little fight and he fell over the fence, you know. And I think afterwards we kind of looked at each other and, you know, a couple of people from the side were laughing and, and, and there would be once in a while crew members that would laugh, you know. Uh, they they would walk off set. But I think the the time that I was on set, the only time that I really saw everybody have to stifle a laugh was when I actually did throw that steak from off camera and I hit him <laughs> in the face with it. Wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. So you actually threw it threw and it blasted steak. him in the face? Yeah, see, you know, they knew that I had played baseball for years. And, I, you know, I got a good arm. <laughs> not a bad arm. I have an accurate arm. Let's say my arm is not what it used to be. I can't, you know, but I've you know, like I have a friend, Randy Wolf, who when he was playing baseball, he blew out his elbow and, and I threw with him every day or every other day to rehab his, you know, coming back from Tommy John to the point where we were standing, you know, 150 feet uh, apart from each other and throwing, you know, the long ball. But I don't, you know, for me, it was a struggle for him. It was just like a, you know, a little wrist whip, you know, but but I still have an accurate arm. And so they were like, dude, you should, do, you should just throw the steak. And I was like, okay, you know, I'll throw it. And the first few times I lobbed it, you know, I was like trying to just hit him. I was trying to aim and, uh, and, and you know, it bounced off his head. It bounced off his shoulder and it, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't really working. And, you know, there, we shot this movie on film. So there was not a lot of film, obviously, because it was a low budget movie. We didn't have, we didn't have, you know, the, the luxury of take after take. And so, Jared Hess had mentioned, well, why don't we just move the camera in closer and I'll just, and you can hit him close. And I said, don't, you'll kill the joke. If you, if you move the camera in close and you hit him close, it won't be funny. It's just not going to be funny. <clears throat> and I said, look, I need a heavier piece of steak and you got to let me really throw that steak and I will hit him. I will hit him square in the face. But I didn't know you want me to hit him hard. I can hit him hard. And John Heater was like, so chuck it. Come on. You know, so I was like, all right. So, I wonder who has this video, but somebody was actually behind me with like a home handy cam and, and, you know, they were doing behind the scenes. And I remember I turned to him and I looked and I said, you watch this. And as he rolled up, I mean, I hurled that stake and it hit him so hard. In the, it's my greatest acting moment of all time. And I wasn't even on camera. And I'm telling you, it slapped him so hard that they did not need to add any sound effect. It knocked his glasses off. And if you go back and look at the scene, Pedro was supposed to stand there for a minute. He just bailed because he <laughs> was going to laugh. Oh, my God. That is hilarious. He saw the whole thing. He saw it coming. He saw me wind up. He saw me. And I was a good, you know, 25 feet away. I mean, you know, maybe it more, was a, maybe 30 It was feet. a dime, dude. Yeah. Yeah. It was, and I threw it hard, and that it was just the best thing I've ever done. I don't the, think I could ever top that in any acting job, anything I've ever done. It's the best best work I've ever done. There's so much brilliance about that scene, though, is that you don't throw your own steak. You take Kip's yeah. steak, right? <laughs> yep. You take it right <laughs> off of his plate. <laughs> that, that's the brilliance. That is the brilliance. And that's Jared Hess. Jared, Jared Hess is like, grab his steak and throw it. It's just so great. I can't believe. Yeah. Okay, so I already it was. It's one of my favorite scenes in the history of film. But the fact that yeah. it, it, like it was actually a one take blast right in his face yeah. is even oh, more yeah. wonderful. Oh yeah, uh, when I when I when I chucked that, I'm telling you, it was such a beautiful throw, and it was just you know, it's just you you know what it how it is when you're playing sports or something, and all of a sudden you're in a situation, and you it's just 
you got to do it, whether it's a basket or a, you know, a pitch or, or uh, receiving a ball, you know, it just is one of those things. You just, you're in that flow in that moment. You don't even think of, you're just, all I'm going to do is hit that dude so hard. And I did. I mean, he had a bruise on the side of his nose for the rest of the shoot. So John, I'm intrigued by this baseball career. I had no idea that you were a ball player. How did that come to be? And what was your experience? Well, I walked on as a second baseman, and I had no business uh, walking on as a second base. I, I showed up. I was already 21, so all the kids were younger than me, but I looked really young. I just had this passion, and I'd never played organized ball before, you know. But I, I went through this period when I was – like right after – my father died when I was 19, and I think the weird catharsis for me was I just got together with a group of guys, and we would meet – our workout every day was rather than go to a gym – we would pitch BP and shag balls and just, we'd do it for three hours every day and just religiously. And so I finally walked on at Santa Monica college and it doesn't have a baseball program anymore. Their program ended. Well, you know, they didn't have a diamond. We would play on a rec uh, field down at Marine park, which was, you know, about two and a half miles from the school. Uh, But I walked on and I was a brick. I mean, I was a, brick i was a terrible infielder but i had a good arm and i could hit a little bit but the reason they kept me around is that all these kids had been recruited they they prided themselves on being a speed team and nobody could beat me so uh I, they kept me around because it's like well we're gonna figure something to do with this guy you know you can't steal first though dude you gotta get there before you steal bases and I, and i started picking up hitting pretty well and you know i really should have played the outfield because that's all i really knew uh but I was a little intimidated by some of the arms. Some of these kids' arms were really, really good. I just played the winter ball season, and then I had to get it because I was 21. I, I there was nobody floating me. I, I had to get a job, and you know the luxury of playing, going af, you know after school at one o'clock and playing till five or five thirty every day was so beautiful. But I I had to get a job, so I I I walked in and told Marty Burson, who was the coach, that I I can't stay and. He said, listen, if I were you, I'd just go straight to the track coach, you know, but I didn't. I just I had to get a job. So, you know, I wasn't acting pretty regularly at that point. I just would get a job, you know, here and there. But so I had to walk away. So that was my Uncle Rico moment, you know. Well, it's the, well the, the, the interesting part about that story to me, too, is sport as escape. You know, you, you yeah. lose your father and you needed, oh, yeah, something. you needed something to lean on. You needed something to emotionally buoy you. And you found it so in true. that group of guys in ball. It, it, it really was. It was a pure catharsis. And the thing is, growing up, my father loved baseball. I mean, I grew up listening to, well, when we were living in New York, it was, uh, what's his name, uh, Lou, uh, Phil Rizzuto. Yep. And when we lived in Los Angeles, it, it was Vin Scully. But really, as a small child, I remember Vin Scully's voice all the time. I mean, it was a, it was a narrative in my house and yet I never played baseball. I always played football. I was, I was a big time football guy, but I was way too small. You know, uh, I, I, I didn't, you know, get to my height until I was like 18 years old. And then I started playing in these rec leagues and I was tearing it up. But at that point it was already, I'd already had my come and gone, you know? Uh, but but when my father passed, you know, there was just something, something about baseball that just woke up in me and, and I became obsessed with it. And, and, uh, you know, I maybe, and, and I think it was, I, I, I like to think that it was because I listened to it 
And I, I kind of regretted that I never had the chance to spend time with him talking baseball or playing baseball because he was, he was such a fan of the game, you know. I can relate. I've said before, when I was young, we didn't have a ton. Uh, but, yep. and, and my dad worked his ass off to sometimes just to keep the lights on. But there were certain Saturdays when he would take me over the mountain to see Virginia Tech play football. And it wasn't yeah. good football at that time. It was one and nine, two and eight, oh and ten every single year. But it was time with my dad. And it Absolutely. was his attention. And it was me feeling his love and hoping he felt mine. And to this day, nowhere on earth do I feel closer to my dad than Lane Stadium in Blacksburg, Virginia. It's kinda weird. But yep. It's true. Um Listen, I'll tell you tell you true. After my father died, I had friends who had uh, tickets at Dodger Stadium. I'd moved back out here from New York, and I was just trying to recuperate and doing this baseball thing. And, uh, you know, I would wear my father's college ring. He went to Georgetown. And, uh, and I truly, I was so, so caught up in it because I loved him so much that I would show, I would, the way I'd sit in the stadium was showing the onyx to the field as if he could see it the game through the onyx like it was his television set like i was his television camera <laughs> you know it was just one of those things but i was so young you know i lost him at 19 and it, and it i just was starting to you know my parents got divorced when i was 13 and and you know there was there was the sense of just being able to talk to him as a man you know and and being straight with him about things that i didn't like and and also being straight with him about things that i loved you know it's wonderful and it was pretty amazing yeah, uh... pretty amazing Appreciate you sharing that with me. That's oh a, yeah, that's really cool. So you played a terrorist in twenty four. <laughs> barely, <laughs> barely. You play Martin's neighbor in Martin. You drove the van. Uh, I was actually. In black. I was the. Yeah, I was the. the uh, I was the engineer in the the radio station for the first two seasons with Garrett Morris as he was a, the station owner and I was the 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 the, uh, the engineer the you know the oddball engineer yeah and then yeah. <laughs> and you played a werewolf a couple times. Long, what what role that you've played is the most fulfilling for you? Well, the you know the, there's a role that people I think that I get stopped for equally as much as I do for Napoleon Dynamite, which is uh, real genius with Val Kilmer. Um, and for me, it's a it, it was a it was a big achievement because prior to getting that film, I um, you know I was working construction and. Uh, I, I was studying hard and working and I got that job and they actually wanted me to come in and read for another character. Uh, the character of Kent, who was the kind of the bad guy who was played by Robert Prescott. And I, I read the script and I called my agent and I said, I want to read for Laszlo, you know, and I was 25 at the time and Laszlo was 40, you know, and they were like, they're not going to read you for, you know, blah, blah, you know, for giving me the, and I just said, I, I just, please just give me a shot. Let me just go on and read for this guy. I, I relate to this guy. And so for me, that movie, just the whole process of getting that movie, and, and they, they made me jump through a, a lot of hoops. I mean, I think I had five callbacks. I think Brian Grazer wanted me from the get-go. I think Martha Coolidge, the director, was a little skeptical still. She didn't know which way she wanted to go, and I was going a very emotional route, and I think that he was written very intellectually. But I, I related to his pain, and... Um, and so now to this day, that, that role, I think I get, I get that lost. Uh, I did uh, played 
Ben uh, Linus's father on Lost and um, and and Napoleon Dynamite are the three. When did you guys know you'd reach cult status with Napoleon Dynamite? You know, it's interesting. I, I contact while we were filming. I watched the, the first scene I watched them film was the scene that was shot without sound of LaFonda and Kip playing footsie under the table. <laughs> I'm telling you, even when I say it, I, it's hilarious, I help, man. I can't help but laugh because to me, that is one of the funniest, <laughs> that's one of the funniest moments in the movie because of his funky socks. You know? so, uh, when I saw it, I mean, I, that was me laughing and having to walk away because I cut. But I called a friend of mine who works in distribution, and I said, "Listen, I'm working here in Idaho on this movie, and I think, I think you're going to want to get this movie. I think somebody needs to come out here and check this out because this is going to this is going to sell. I think this movie might make a million or two. You know, that's where my attitude was. Well, and you underestimated uh, and was, John. I did. I way on. Well, when I realized when I got to Sundance and and we showed at Sundance and we were all there and, and truly there's nothing like going to Sundance and being the bell of the ball, you know, and we were, I mean, everybody was talking about the movie and the, the lines were around the block. People got wait lists trying to get in and, and just the crush to see the film. And then when we'd walk down the streets, it felt like, you know, the Beatles back in like the sixties, you know, in the early sixties, it was like all of a sudden there they are, you know, the guys from Napoleon died, you know, it just was this thing, you know? And at that moment I was like, Oh boy, Oh boy. I think this is going to sell and this is going to do really well. And, uh, and you know, uh, that's, but it wasn't until then, but you know, I will say this also uh, when Jeremy Kuhn, who was the executive producer, he was also the editor of the movie. And interestingly enough, this is a guy who never really edited much except in college, right? He was also just, he was in Jared Hess's class. He was the one who basically went to his brother and said, Hey, could you loan me some money? I want to, I want to finance a movie, you know, with Jared. And his brother had just sold a telecom company. His brother was much older and sold a Midwestern telecom company. And he had a lot of money and he was like, dude, I'll give you enough for three. And he was like, no, no, I just need one, one, one movie. And so um, he cut this movie, you know, and he was out here in Los Angeles when he was cutting it. And Jared Hess was in Idaho. So, I mean, in Utah, he was living in Salt Lake at the time. And so I would go to the editing room. I mean, I, you know, I had nothing else to do at the time. So I would go to the editing room with him and spend a lot of time. And, and, uh, and it was, uh, it was then once in a while we would, we needed fresh eyes to, to see the movie and we'd bring people in and, and their reaction was always kind of like, wow, these people are really, you know, you, you kind of get immune to it because you're sitting with it every day, you know? And, uh, I didn't quite sit with it every day, but I was there twice a week probably, you know? And, uh, you know, but then I think I got an ink, we both got an inkling when people were, um, were laughing the way they were. And, and, and then they got accepted to the slam dance festival. And I, I got on the phone and I called them both and I said, don't do it. Don't do it. Just wait. Hold out. Wait for Sundance. I know you guys are going to get in. And they were worried, you know, because Slamdance contacted them right away and said, "We're going to premiere. We're going to we're going to push this thing." But you know, Slamdance is a is a high school football game compared to uh, Sundance. You know, when you look at the character group, you know, you got Napoleon, Pedro, Kip, Deb, LaFonda, your character, Crazy Grandma, Rex Quando, yeah. Starla, like Starla. Come on. I know. 
it's just <laughs> it's 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 just the funniest thing ever. And I want you even to even Don. I mean Don yes. and the, and the guy that that yes. beats him up and kicks kicks his uh, what's his name who's local kids. But Donnie always pulling his shirt as he laughed. You know he had this weird kind of thing that he did, and he was a local kid. You know he's a local kid, and he was so funny. You know I thought that I, it was lucky. It was kismet. There was just so many things that fell together that um, could could have not. You know. Well, it's given it's given so many millions of people so much joy and so much laughter and. I think about one of my great mentors, this guy named Mark Dyer, and Mark, um, we used to go to, he had this theater in his house, and we would go out on Lake Norman in Charlotte, and we'd have a bunch of cold beer, and then we'd come back off the boat, and I mean, I'm telling you, we'd watch sports, and once we were done with the sports for the day, Napoleon Dynamite came on, <laughs> and we watched it. Dude, I'm telling you, I bet I've seen a movie 500 times. I'm not, it's not. Oh, my God. I know it's ridiculous. It's it's crazy, but, but you see new things every time. I mean, you do. I know. maybe not not every time with five hundred times, but I'm sure you see. You know, in the first ten times you saw it, you're like, wow. Every time there's a new layer, there's something new, there's something funny to pick up on. You know. Last thing, what is Uncle Rico's greatest line? Well, I mean, I think, I think that, uh, you know, back in '82, I. I used to be able to throw a pigskin a quarter mile. I mean, I think that that's almost. (laughs) That's American lexicon right there, John. That is. I mean, I, you know, I I would be, I would be trying too hard to pick another line. You know what I mean? Like I would be trying to be different, but that line just seems to be like, you know, people always, my baseball, I still play in a hardball league. And and they say to me, I show up and they say, you know, the, the, the guest, the other team will see me and a couple guys might recognize me and say, you know, I get to first base or something. And the first baseman looks over and he goes, you're going to throw a football or you're going to throw the baseball. Over the mound? You know, like. uh, so we've spent the entirety of this time together today. I have asking you about previous roles. I would love to know what you're up to currently. What's going on right now, man? I'm on a show, you know, Adult Swim Network, which is, you know, yep. it, it's actually run by Turner Broadcasting. It's a, it's the Cartoon Network at night. I'm on a show called Dream Corp LLC, and I'm telling you, this show is amazing. It's an incredible show, and there's only been six episodes that have aired so far, but the new season is coming, and we've done 14 more, and we're gonna, we're now in pre- preparation to do another 14. And I'm telling you, the show is off the charts. It's amazing. What's the theme? It's a guy who used to be a Silicon Valley sweetheart. You know, that's a character I play. His name's Dr. Roberts. And he he uh, basically has lost his funding, but he still has some of the equipment. And he, he runs out of a, a rundown strip mall, and he has a dream center where if you come in and you've got problems, he can put you under... And then he'll join you in your dreams and fix your problems in one session. And and a lot of anime, you know, when we go into the dreams, it's animated. It's rotoscope animation, which is just utterly stunning. It's like art, but it's also live action. And we have amazing guest stars who come on the show. And it's just incredible. It's really, really incredible. Awesome. And, well, um, check it out, man. Uh, that sounds fantastic, yeah. brother. It's worth, worth, worth seeing. It's so out there. <laughs> it's really fun, though. Well, again, we we appreciate your time so much and your talent, and uh, it's just awesome. It's awesome to get to spend I, this time. I appreciate, with you. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. I really do. And and likewise, back at you, man. Thank you so much. 
As you heard my man Rico say, it's time for the Marty party. What are we going to do, bud? We're going to drink one of these beers. Hand me one of them damn beers real quick. What's up, man? Marty party. And I'm going to recruit my boy, Ryan McGee, from the Marty and McGee program every Saturday morning, 7 to 9 Eastern on ESPN Radio Live. It's the stupidest radio program in the history of the world. However, our cult following is substantial. And since we interviewed uh, John, it was so nice of him to come on. Uncle Rico, one of my favorite characters in the history of cinema. McGee, I want to know your thoughts on uh, on Uncle Rico, the character, and then we're going to get into your favorite stupid characters of all time. We So we all remember Uncle Rico because we all know Uncle Rico. See, I right? said that to him in the interview. Yeah. That, guy, that guy is in every single town in the United States of America, and in fact... As I told John during the interview, Laney Smith would say, I am that guy. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> well, I remember, man. I remember the guy. and I'm, So I moved, you know this, I moved in the middle of high school. I moved from Raleigh down to Travers Rest, South Carolina. And and I was like, well, we won't. You know, we got the guy at Enloe High School in Raleigh who hangs out with his letter jacket for four years ago and just stands in the parking lot thinking the girls are going to be, still be impressed. And I, was, I thought that was just unique to that. Well, then I moved down to Travers Rest, South Carolina. There are like four of them. Yeah, man. And it's just, you know, they show up for lunch wearing their letter jacket from like they four years early. They prom, bro. Yeah. It's just, and it's like, it's like, dude, you're 22. It's time to, it's time to move on. So yeah, that's the, the beauty, the beauty of the characters that steal the movie, like Uncle Rico, is that you know them. You relate. You look at him and you think, I, I, "That's that's my uncle." Or well, I got to get. I have to get your response to this. He told us during the interview, as all you guys just heard, uh, he told us during the interview that the director of the movie based the Uncle Rico character off a guy that he saw every day driving to yeah. school, yep. who would set up a camcorder in his yeah. front yard and throw oh, yeah. footballs at the camcorder. Oh, yeah. It was like a real-life thing. Yeah. It's, it's, it is the personification of you can't make this shit up. Yeah. And, and, it, and, like, so I did a story when Peyton Manning was coming back. You know, he'd been hurt, and, and, and he, was, he was working out in secret at Duke with, with his old college coach and all that. And Coach Cut. And coach Cut. And, but – when I was talking to Peyton and I was talking to even talking to Eli and they kept talking about, well, so-and-so. And then you know, I sent him uncle Rico and da, 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 da. And I shot some uncle Rico and I realized that's the term they use for when Peyton Manning would have to record himself every day with his throwing <laughs> motion. Like, is my shoulder working right? Is my neck working right? And that's what they call it. They call it their uncle Rico film. Uncle I had Rico to say uncle Rico film. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it, it's just so funny. I, I was saying to him during the interview as well, and this is one, one area where Laney considers me to be, uh, the, the modern day Uncle Rico is. So I get, when I get new shirts for work for the television side of my job, I get them embroidered. And when I get new jackets and new suits, I get them in the inside pocket embroidered. And I always put MS9. My number is yeah. a part of me forever. You and I have discussed yeah. this on the Marty and McGee program ad nauseum, and people will write in on Twitter, oh, I was number this. Oh, yeah, I still have my license plate says I'm number 83. Yeah. All that stuff. And when I went down to Alabama, as you recall, went down to Alabama before the season opener last year, and I dressed out in full pads and took off running the 50-yard dash, 
You can't, I bet I got 500 notes on social media and my phone blew up from all my boys. The Levitard boy, Dan and Stu, Mike Ruiz, all those guys are calling me Uncle Rico. Uncle Rico. Yeah. It is this transcendent character yeah. that is just awesome. And dude, I, to hear John discuss the actual filming of it is just was fascinating. It was fun. What character, what are those characters for you? I mean, there's, there's two, two above all else for me. And that is Uncle Rico number one and cousin Eddie number two. Yeah. And, and it's funny you mentioned cousin Eddie because we talked about him on Marty McGee. Uh, just within the last couple of weeks, and when Dennis Quaid or Randy Quaid played him, he and Dennis Quaid, his brother, talked about it, and and they they both have said repeatedly that cousin Eddie's based on like we, we knew him, like an uncle of theirs, like we knew that guy. But, but for me, like one of my heroes is Gary Cole, the actor, and Gary Cole played uh, Reese Bobby. Ricky Bobby's dad. Oh, yeah, when nice. when they did, when they did the Brady Bunch reboot, uh, he played Mr. Brady and was awesome. He's the guy that played the, he played the play by play guy for ESPN eight the Ocho and Dodgeball. But but Gary Cole and I always want to talk to this guy. But he played Bill Lundberg in Office Space, the guy with the suspenders and the coffee cup. Yep. And hey, I'm going to need you to come in on Saturday. And, you know, and, you know, great. And all right. I mean, he just, that, that, that role took it. Cause again, I knew that guy. And you know, another one I love. Eddie Harris. Yeah. Eddie Harris is yeah. a really, really good one. Yeah. You trying to tell me Jesus Christ can't hit a curveball, son? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's the best. And well, and I give you one. You know, we just lost Bill Paxton. Of course, who we both love is That's Morgan my, Earp. My dude. In, in Tombstone. But I always love Chet, the brother from Weird Science. And he goes, I'm going to butter your muffin. And, and, and every movie he was in, he was in Titanic. I mean, he was in all these unbelievable movies. And every time he would pop up, my brother would lean over to me and he'd go, I'm going to butter your muffin. Cause that's all we could think of was that he was but brother Chet. The Chet's. single greatest character he ever played was Morgan Earp. Oh yeah. The, I mean, come on now. Did I ever tell you my story about meeting Bill Paxton at the Kentucky Derby? You did. You told it on, on he Marty bought, McGee. He bought me shots. He bought me shots of Jack Daniels 7 at the bar at the Maxim party at the 2011, I think 2011 is when we went. I'd have to confirm that with Laney. But I think it was a 2011 Kentucky Derby. And we got invited somehow to this Maxim party. And I walk into the Maxim party, and the first person I see is Lindsey Vaughn. And Laney and, and her girlfriends went to the bathroom, went to the restroom, and I went to the bar to get everybody a drink, and the first person I see is Bill Paxton. And he, like, high-fives me. And I'm like, hey, man, you're Morgan Earp. And he started laughing his ass off. He said, yes, I am. Let's take a shot. And I said, all right, big dog, let's ride. So a year ago, you know this, my daughter. I don't take shots, by the way. For all of y'all listening. I do. I appreciate, I appreciate the thought yeah. of being uh, someone buying me a shot to be kind, I appreciate that thought. But I don't do shots because they destroy me, man. I can drink destroy a lot. Yeah. But the shots, just they just end me, man. I saw Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, the other day, another one of my favorites. And Jim Gaffigan made the comment. He said, he said, shots, he said, only serve one purpose. And he goes, and that purpose is to make you as stupid as possible as quickly as possible. 
It's and true. That's just how and, it is. Yeah. And they hurt so much the next day. Yeah. I remember I, I disappointed. I disappointed somebody in Miami. I went out when I was down there to cover Miami, Notre Dame, I think. Lebetard and Roy and Mike and Cody and all those guys drug Wiley and me out to go out and party. And I don't do that on the road very much anymore, man. I got You have to be on, right? Like you can't have a hangover unless you're doing Marty and McGee, which we're hungover every Saturday morning for that. Right. We went out, and I'm I'm nursing a couple beers, and I'm starting to get in it pretty good. And all these old boys came in. And, look, Dan Lebetard is God in Miami. It's crazy to watch people react to him. But they were coming over and saying, what's up, Marty Party? And they wanted these guys trying to buy me shots. We know you're a jack guy, man. Here's these shots. I'm like, fellas, please don't buy me shots. Please don't. Because I don't want to say no. I take one shot. I was wrecked, Jack. I mean, destroyed. No, and I only, felt that they, thing they the next morning at 5:45 when we left for work too. Yeah, it's um. How did we get off on this tangent? Because it's what we do. Well, and I feel like Uncle Rico at some point probably took a shot. Uncle Rico, because he never got a shot. Uh, that was that smooth. That was pretty smooth. That was pretty <laughs> smooth. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, that's the Marty Party. One issue that McGee and I don't have, I mean, we have our share, certainly. We got a lot of issues, in fact. But one issue that we do not have is hair loss. We both have all kind of hair, but a lot of our buddies don't. And trust me, hair loss is not just your dad's problem, guys. It happens earlier in life than you think. By 35, two out of three men will start losing their hair. But hair loss is actually easy to prevent if you get started early. I want to introduce you guys to Keeps. It's a new company offering a simple, clinically proven, affordable way to stop hair loss. I know when y'all look in the mirror in the morning and you and it's creeping, it's creeping on you, you need Keeps. With Keeps, it's easier than ever for guys losing their hair to keep the hair they have. It's the easiest way to keep that hair. Keeps offers the only two FDA-approved hair loss products clinically proven to keep the hair you have, and sign-up takes less than five minutes. Keeps is entirely online and only 10 to $35 a month, so it's a dollar a day or less on average. This is half of what you typically pay at the pharmacy. Getting started with Keeps is really easy. Just answer a few questions and snap a couple photos. A licensed doctor remotely reviews your information and gives you the right prescription, all without ever leaving your couch. Within two to three days, a three-month supply of your treatment will arrive perfectly packaged at your door. Fellas, stop hair loss today, the easy way, with Keeps. Customize treatment plans with the only FDA-approved hair loss products for $1 a day. From the comfort of your couch. You don't have to go see anybody. Just get on your computer. To receive your first month of treatment free, go to keeps.com slash Marty. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash Marty. That's a free month of treatment at keeps.com slash Marty. Keeps. Hair today. Hair tomorrow. Now, let's head over to hear what kind of idiocy came in on the hotline words sayings or just a way of life roman candles that's a redneck mortar launcher that's what that is <laughs> this is hillbillyisms 
we had a couple of ridiculous calls per usual, but the most ridiculous actually came live on Marty and McGee. Our boy Brent told us a tale of going to the Bristol Motor Speedway Cup Series race and where he happened to stay during the race weekend. It got really, really dicey. We were supposed to stay in these all-brick duplexes about a half mile away from the racetrack. When I got there, the lady handed me a set of keys and a shower curtain rod and said, I'm sorry, but the place you booked is booked up. we got another place a few miles behind us. It was late at night. Uh, Bud Light wasn't going to drink itself. we got to get somewhere. And uh, we get So we drive up to this address, and I pull up, and my headlights shine on this 35-foot-tall 200 foot wide acoustic guitar and we just bust out laughing like there ain't no way in hell this is where we're supposed to stay so i go out in the street there's actually a mailbox for this place and i look at it and i'm like well the address is right and there's a door on it so i walk up to the door (laughs) and uh walk up to the door and open it up and of course, you guys being where y'all are from, you know what an open box of baking soda means if you see it. Right. Yeah, uh, that means... That, that means, means beware. That smells... <laughs> yeah. That's a warning and, shot right there, Bubba. Uh, I open the door and turn on the lights, and I swear to y'all, this is like this orange glow to this place. There's a two-bedroom apartment underneath this guitar. And every... Uh, Every corner, the refrigerator, all of it had these open boxes of baking soda. And I oh. look at my uncle and my cousin. I'm like, man, I don't know what went on in here, and I may not want to know. No. But we, <laughs> but we still searched around, and the uh, mattress had blood on it. <laughs> oh, Lord. Uh, what? Uh, oh, man, it was, was, I'm telling you, I could describe it. For 30 minutes and it probably still wouldn't do it justice. did you send us a photograph of that by chance he did Brent? last week i, yeah. I, I did yeah. yep yeah that was amazing and, uh, where is it now it's it's near Britain. it's in it's off of 11 right next to i-81 it's almost in bluntville tennessee but right. it's i it's have in to go Bristol. see this place man no, oh you not. will well and I, what i was gonna say brent was that marty and i should do the show from there but but then now that you described it i don't we don't do it's in our contract we don't do shows from locations <laughs> that have multiple cans of open bacon soda yeah i would uh i would advise doing it outside Lord. of it suspect uh, mattresses yeah oh but uh that was that was the start of a, a great weekend needless to say we looked at each other and we're like you know what i think we're gonna go stay somewhere else so we ended up staying inside the van we drove across the street from the racetrack where the old junkyard used to be and now it's the uh race day condominiums yeah yeah, yeah man uh, oh yeah yeah we, we stayed right there and uh like i said last week i got a whole nother story about that but we ain't got time for that this yeah, call, well call <laughs> us again so ladies and gentlemen the moral of the story is if somebody hands you a shower curtain rod and says go stay in the guitar don't do it if you walk into your establishment and there's aren't boxes of baking soda open under the john. Don't do it. Beware. Beware. Brent, thank you for that public service announcement. We appreciate the intel. God bless Bristol, Virginia. And Bristol, Tennessee. Did you guys know that a, that the state line cuts Bristol right in half? There's even a sign to prove it right there on the road. Thank you so much to John Grise for coming on and sharing his experience 
both as Uncle Rico and the other characters, but also his personal introspection. Man, that was so, so unique and awesome. I really appreciate him taking that time. I appreciate McGee for hanging out in the Marty party. It's always the time of my life with that idiot. Nobody has more fun than he and I do on the Marty and McGee program. Uh, one of my best friends in the world. Appreciate Travis Rockhold. Travis, say hello one time, son. What's up, guys? Appreciate Travis so much. Travis is brilliant at his job. Without him, the podcast wouldn't be the bot podcast, and Marty and McGee wouldn't be Marty and McGee. We appreciate Louise Cornetta, who is Travis's boss, who made the decision to put this mess on the air in the first place. So thank you to Louise for always being a believer. And above all, thank you guys. Without you guys, there is no us. Call the hotline. Travis, tell them the number because I always forget it. Please. 860-516-1315. That's 860-516-1315. Hit us on the hotline. We know. Look, Marty and McGee's proof every single week. We know you guys have stories about idiots. You've heard Hillbilly headlines. We know what you see when you call in and talk to us about it. Call us. Your call might end up on the air, and we just might discuss it. That's the Marty Smith's America podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Your loyalty is awesome. Thank you, guys. Have an awesome week.